Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Before we begin, a quick explanatory note. The memoirs that make up this volume came into my hands quite unexpectedly one day. When my wife and I moved into the house in Streatham, where we've now lived for nearly 15 years, we became friendly with the elderly lady who lived in the ground floor flat of the large house next door, a Mrs Lander. One day we happened to be talking about my interest in comedy and comedians, and she said, Of course, my grandfather knew Charlie Chaplin. Really, I said, thinking to myself, yes, and Lloyd George too, no doubt. Oh, yes, Mrs Lander said. They were really quite thick, apparently. It seems incredible to me now, looking back, but I didn't really pursue the subject. Eventually, Mrs Lander moved to a residential care home, and then a few months later her daughter dropped round to tell us that sadly she'd passed away. She wanted me to thank you for your kindness, the daughter said, and asked me to make sure you had this. The battered old trunk she left me, which was brown, reinforced by wooden ribs and secured by what looked like an army belt, had been used as a repository for the memorabilia of a career treading the boards. There were wooden swords and shields in the Roman style, and a lion skin, somewhat past its best. There was some old-fashioned football kit, a red shirt with a lace-up collar, long white pantaloons and big boots that laced above the ankle. There was also a big black cape of the sort you might see a magician wearing, and a top hat. Underneath all this, lying flat at the bottom of the trunk, were papers, including posters from old music hall and vaudeville bills, mostly featuring the sketches of the great Fred Carno. Tucked in amongst these charming relics were old black-and-white photographs of groups of young men and women posing together, sometimes in theatrical costume and makeup, sometimes formally dressed, often in front of steam locomotives. Who were they, I wondered, and what had they been doing? I inspected the old photographs more closely. Surely that dapper young fellow with a toothy smile was Charlie Chaplin? And who was that one, standing over to one side, captured in an instant, glowering at young Chaplin as though he would cheerfully throttle him until his eyes popped out? Well, the answers were to be found in a brown leather satchel right at the bottom of the trunk, in the memoirs of the owner, one Arthur Dando, comedian. I've no reason to doubt that they represent a truthful account, and where Dando touches upon verifiable historical fact is invariably accurate, considerably more so than his contemporary managed in his 1964 autobiography, at any rate. Indeed, this memoir covers a period very swiftly, one might almost say dismissively dealt with in that other volume, and seems to have been written in response to it, in the spirit of setting the record straight. Readers can judge whether or not Dando is to be believed regarding more personal matters. Part 1. Chapter 1. College Life. So tell me, how did you get started? That's what people always seem to want to know, as though finding out how mundane, how matter-of-fact, how accidental everything was at the kick-off will reassure them that it could all have happened to them, if only... In point of fact, the vast majority of theatrical performers I've met in my long and interesting life had the great advantage of being born into the game, never knowing anything else. 
Look no further than Chaplin's autobiography. He paints a vivid, one might almost say melodramatic, picture of a childhood as the offspring of two music hall personalities. His father was a bona fide headliner, a baritone purveyor of faintly ribald sing-along items who drank himself to death at the age of 37, and his mother was also a singer who went by the name of Lily Harley. She lost her voice and subsequently her marbles, and Charlie's first exposure to the joys of being on stage came, he says, at five years of age. He had to stand in for her one night at the canteen in Aldershot when she couldn't face it, sang a song, Jack Jones it was, scored a notable hit, of course, or it wouldn't be in the book, and he was on his way. I, on the other hand, unlike Charlie, and unlike Stan, whose father was a notable theatre impresario, and unlike Groucho and the boys who were child performers with uncles and aunts in the vaudeville business, wasn't born into it. So how did I get started? I take you back to Cambridge, in the time of the old king, Edward VII, when the years, oddly and evenly, began with ought. He was an enthusiastic visitor to the halls, by the way, old Bertie, used to come in disguise, but everyone recognised him, of course. His face was on the coins, after all. So back in Ort 7, it must have been, a glittering generation of carefree young things disported themselves about the old university town, sipping champagne in the sunshine on the banks of the Cam, flirting, carousing, occasionally dipping into a book or two, little dreaming that they were enjoying the last golden decade of the British Empire and that the whole world order was just a few short years from changing forever. I was there too. Well, someone had to clean up after them, pick up their empties, make their beds, collect up their soiled laundry. And that someone was me, Arthur Dando, aged 17. Not born into the theatre, you see, born into servitude. I'd lived in and around the college all my life. The school I went to until I was 14 was just up the road. The little terraced house vouchsafed to the Dandos by the college in its beneficence was about a 100 yards outside the main gate, up Trumpington Street. All of my family belonged to the college and had done going back into the mists of time. My mother, bless her, worked morning, noon and night in the kitchens, turning out exemplary breakfasts, luncheons and five-course suppers day after day. I wish I could say now that I miss my mother's cooking, but the plain fact is I hardly ever got to taste any of it, certainly not during term time. Her best work was destined for a higher class of palate than mine. Lance, my brother, six years older than me, had returned to college dog's body status after a stint in the army. He had served in southern Africa during the conflict there, and despite many attempts by me and the other lads to get him to tell us tales of daring do and glamorous hand-to-hand -hand fighting with a filthy pig-faced boer, I only ever heard him use three words to describe his active service. These three words were, I shit myself. And there was my father. He was the head porter, which gave him a certain amount of status about the place. No one, whether he was a plummy-voiced undergraduate, a crusty old brain box, a college servant, or, it has to be said, a family member, ever addressed him as anything other than Mr Dando. Woe betide the unthinking fool who popped his head into the porter's lodge and said something like, I say, porter chappy, or worse, I say Dando, be a good chap and hail me a cab, there's a good fellow. The back would straighten, the nose would crinkle, the thumbs would work their way into the waistcoat pockets and my father would say... I've lived and worked in this college for nigh on thirty year, man and boy. I've risen in that time to the position of head porter, like my father before me. And as such, I believe I've earned the right to be addressed as Mr Dando. He would lurk in his little room in the porter's lodge, which was built into the side of the original 14th century archway at the main gate, like some gigantic spider. The invisible strands of his web stretched out to the furthest extremes of the college, and he was sensitive to its minutest vibrations. Nothing got past him. 
All his hopes of the Dando line continuing its tenure of the Porter's Lodge were vested in me, and I was a sad disappointment to him on this score. He seemed to have more or less given up on Lance, partly, I think, because when his eldest left to join the army all those years ago, he put his king and country before the college, and to my father's way of thinking, that was simply the wrong way round. One day, lad, he was fond of saying to me, if possible within earshot of Lance, all this will be yours. You'll be master of all you survey. Every time he'd say this, I would grind my teeth a little bit more. My father got it into his head, as part of his grand plan for me, that I should familiarise myself with all aspects of college servitude, and in this spirit he allocated me a staircase. O staircase, to be precise, and I began a period as a probationary bedder. Now college bedders, or bed makers, to give them their full title, were invariably women, usually matronly figures chosen precisely because of the sheer unlikeliness that they would inflame the passions of the young gentlemen of the college. As you can imagine, I was not overly thrilled to count myself amongst their number. I got my own back by perfecting a wicked impersonation of my father with which I'd entertain the other college servants behind his back. I got his voice off so pat that I could actually put the wind up folk if I spotted them slacking. On one occasion I came across two of the bedders sitting on the stairs having a good old chinwag when they should have been working. I tiptoed up to a spot one flight below them, just out of sight, and realised gloriously that they were having a right old go at my father and his ways. Picking my moment, just when one of them had ill-advisedly described the old man as a tartar of the first order, I bellowed at the top of my voice, or rather his voice, "'So, that's what you think of me, Clarice Thompson!' I then climbed the stairs and peeked round the corner to find that Clarice was in gibbering hysterics, and her companion, most gratifyingly, had fainted clean away. Lance claimed outright that I could never fool him, though, so imagine my joy when our father caught him one Sunday having a sly smoke in the Wren Chapel. "'Lancelot Dando, what in the name of all that's holy do you think you're playing at?' he cried, outraged, to which Lance, without turning round to look, retorted, "'Fuck off, Arthur, you little bastard, I know it's you.' "'Oh!' Oh, my father spluttered, incoherent with anger. Fuck off, I said, or I'll kick your bony ass for you, you scrawny little shite. Lance was twenty-three and had been in the army, remember, but he was still carted unceremoniously out of the chapel by the lug hole, looking like nothing so much as my father's pet orangutan. On this one particular morning, the morning of the day when it all started... I'd helped out with breakfast, I'd whizzed around the rooms on O staircase with the duster, and I'd popped back to the kitchens, where Mum was able to slip me a piece of cold bacon and a couple of slices of bread. I had a bolt hole near the library, behind a big, ugly, black-green statue of William Pitt the Younger, a celebrated college old boy, and I tucked myself away there to get outside my bacon sandwich and read a penny blood. You'll remember these, I'm sure, little flimsy storybooks, packed with lurid adventures of pirates and cowboys, kidnapping and murder. I forget how much it used to cost now. My favourite tales were the ones set in America. Partly it was the grandeur of the place, the huge snow-capped mountain ranges, the mighty plunging canyons, the vast sweeping desert plains. If you'd been born and brought up in Cambridge, then you could get a kick out of almost any geographical feature grander than a slight incline. Mostly, though, it was the freedom it seemed to represent, the freedom to go where you wanted, be what you wanted, to rustle cattle or prospect for gold, to stake your claim for a piece of the new world. So there I was, hidden behind a likeness of one of our great Prime Ministers, when suddenly a horny hand grabbed my collar and yanked me out. I spluttered, showering crumbs and half-chewed bacon over my father's coat. "'There you are!' he cried. "'I might have known you'd be skiving off somewhere. "'What about your staircase? What about your beds?' I'm finished, I coughed. How did the old spider know I was there? Well then, why aren't you laying out the luncheon in the great hall? 
But I was just... How on earth do you expect to ever get the lodge with this sort of attitude? Do you think your grandfather rose to become head porter of the college by lazing about the place? Do you think I gained that position in my turn by slacking off and backsliding? I don't want it. I mumbled, still struggling with a mouthful of crusty bread. I don't know where the nerve came from to answer back on this particular day. Ordinarily, I'd have let the storm blow itself out. I beg your pardon? I don't want the lodge. I don't want to be head porter. My father had hold of the lapels of my jacket, and in his frustration he began to shake me, which didn't help me to get rid of the mouthful of sandwich. Well, what do you want, then? Tell me that. Tell me what glorious plan you have devised for yourself. I took a breath, a couple of furious chews and swallowed. Then I looked up at my father, his exasperated face shining red. I want to go to America, I said. America? He scoffed, investing that one single word with every morsel of scorn he could muster. I suppose we've got this trash to thank for that bright idea, have we? He snatched the story from my hand and flicked through it contemptuously. Well, young man, you can do the late rounds for me all this week. That'll give you some time to think about the error of your ways. There was a curfew in operation at all the colleges, and any students spotted on the streets after eleven at night by the bulldogs could be fined the finicky but traditional sum of six shillings and eightpence, a third of a pound, and repeated infractions could result in a student being sent down, which meant sent home. Cambridge, you see, thought so much of itself that the only way was down once you left the place, even though geographically speaking it was so near to sea level that almost everywhere else was up. The college, too, could levy a fine called gatepence to be paid to the porter, whose job it was to apprehend any bright spark trying to avoid stumping up this pittance by clambering in the back way. The well-oiled undergraduate would regard this as a kind of local sport and would think nothing of dumping you on your backside in an ornamental lily pond before shouting, Hulloo! and disappearing over the horizon. My father, understandably, had tired of this treatment over the years, and as soon as I was big enough to take care of myself, doing the late rounds became his preferred punishment for me. Actually, I didn't mind too much, as I soon realised that if I managed to catch anyone and get gatepence off them, I could trouser it myself. Later that evening, then, after the knobs had had their five-course dinners and their brandies and their ports and everyone else had toddled off to bed, I was dawdling behind some bushes in New Court with a clear view of the single-storey bathhouse. I'd heard some rustling in the street outside as I passed the back gates, you see, and I suspected that someone was about to make an attempt. Sure enough, after a moment or two, I heard the telltale straining of some hero launching an assault on the north face of a lamppost, and then a leg was slung over the wall, followed by a backside, and finally a complete human form lay silhouetted against the lamplight playing on the building opposite. To my astonishment, it was a woman. She was wearing a green frock, padded out by a number of petticoats, by the look of things, and she paused for a moment, panting in a most unladylike fashion from the exertion of the climb, before beginning to slide a shapely leg gingerly down the roof towards me. I was delighted, because if some young rogue was trying to sneak a lady into his rooms, then he was committing a serious sending-down offence, and I should be able to extract a little more than just gatepence from him to keep his secret. I watched for Romeo to make his appearance, but strangely there was no sign of him. Juliet, meanwhile, was leaning rather precariously over the guttering, and suddenly lost her grip, toppling headfirst into one of the large bins full of kitchen refuse. Well, I'm not sure what was in there that particular night, but nothing you'd want to be upside down in, that's for sure. I broke cover and went to lend a hand. The lady had toppled the big bin over on its side by the time I reached her, and was truffling around in there looking for something. With an aha of triumph, she emerged, clutching her prize, covered in bits of potato peel and such like, but still, recognisably, a rather fancy wig with lots of ringlets. It was then that the penny dropped. 
"'Good evening, Mr Luscombe,' I said. Mr Luscombe was a first-year student, a friendly, cheerful chap whom I rather liked. When I said earlier that his leg was shapely, you have to remember that it was quite dark, and the mind sees what it hopes to see often, doesn't it? "'Oh, dash it all!' he moaned. "'I hoped I was going to get away with this. Damnation!' I assured him that his secret was safe with me, and he clutched my arm. "'I say, do you mean it? Stout fellow! Stout fellow, indeed!' He clambered to his feet and brushed kitchen rubbish from his frock, then looked around furtively. "'I'm afraid I'm going to have to trouble you for the late charge, though, Mr Luscombe, if you'd be so kind.' Luscombe's hand went for his trouser pocket, and then remembered that neither trouser nor pocket was there. "'Oh, hang it all! I say, listen, Dando, you're a decent fellow, I know, and, and this must look dashed odd to you. How about you pop up to my rooms in a few minutes, and, and, and I'll see you right? And perhaps, what, a little bit extra, eh? What do you say?' Well, Luscombe was all right in my book. Some of the other gentlemen of my acquaintance, including, I may say, Mr Luscombe's humourless older brother, who'd left the college to join the family business the previous summer, would lounge around pulling a face as though something had died on their top lips while I made their beds for them in the mornings. This Mr Luscombe, though, always had a smile and a cheery word or two, and so I nodded, and he darted off into the darkness like a startled rabbit. I, meanwhile, carried on with the late rounds, ambling around the old courtyard and up to the Wren Chapel, little realising that the course of my entire life had just been dramatically diverted. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 2. The Smoking Concert By the time I got round to O's staircase and tapped on his door, Luscombe had transformed himself back into the pink-faced young fellow that I knew, now wearing a mauve smoking jacket and dark trousers. A cigarette and a fire were on the go, and there was a small kettle dangling in his fireplace, steaming away. "'Hello, Dando, old chap,' he cried. "'Come in, come in. Let's have a cup of tea, eh?' I thought about offering to serve the tea up, but then thought, what the hell, if he wanted to play at being friends, then why not?' "'You must be wondering what on earth I've been doing this evening,' he asked with a nervy laugh. I merely shrugged, as though I apprehended young gentlemen scrambling over the walls dressed as women every night of the week. "'Well, you'll have heard of the Footlights Club.' I hadn't. "'Oh, surely? The Footlights Club? No? The honorary degree? It was an absolute smash last summer. Everyone was talking about it. Rottenberg wrote it. You must have heard of Rottenberg. Harry Rottenberg? The Rotter?' I assured him that I knew of no Rottenberg. His face fell. Oh, 
Well, look here then. Um, the Footlights Club is absolutely the premier dramatic society in Cambridge. Their shows are all comedy and music, none of this dreary highbrow stuff, the taming of the, the thing or the, the merry wives of wherever. No, 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 just the most tremendous fun. I've been simply desperate to join, and, and tonight after supper they were having auditions in a room in Maudlin. The rotter's speciality, as it happens, is female impersonation, and I've been getting together a little item for a smoker in college next week. I must have been looking blank, for he paused to fill me in. A smoker? A smoking concert? We have one every term in the old reader. Very informal, really. Chaps do a turn, or a song they've written, or a poem, or a dance. There's a fellow called Hulbert in the first year at Keys. Apparently he is the most terrific clog dancer. Luscombe handed me a cup of tea. My turn, do you see, is going to be in a dress, in the character of the master's wife, Lady Marjorie. So I took the old costume along with me to the audition this evening, and do you know what those rotters at the footlights did? They kept me waiting until the very last, and then finally, while I was on stage, in character, doing the little monologue that I've worked out, they pinched all my own clothes and disappeared into the night. He wore such an expression of pop-eyed outrage that I had to laugh, and after a moment he began to giggle as well. <laughs> I didn't even notice they'd all gone right away. I thought I wasn't getting many laughs. <laughs> really, those rotters. They've got my wallet and everything. Mention of his lost wallet reminded me that I was there to collect gate-pence from him and also the little bit extra that he'd mentioned. It's uh, it's past midnight, Mr Luscombe, I began. I, I should be on my way, really. Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll see you right, of course. He pottered about, looking for coppers on the dresser, but I could see that his mind was on something else, and suddenly he turned to me with a thoughtful expression on his face. "'I say, listen here, Dando, I wonder if you'd like to help me out?' "'If I can, sir, of course,' I said, a little wary. "'Well, look, it's about my turn, my monologue. You see, I want it to be a big surprise at the smoker when I come on as Lady Marjorie, and if word gets out, it'll ruin the moment. You see that?' "'I suppose that made sense.' So I was thinking, since you've already seen, I mean, the cat's out of your particular bag, as it were, perhaps you wouldn't mind having a quick look and letting me know what you think. I, uh, stout fellow, it'll only take a moment to pop the kit back on and I'll be right with you. I tried to say that there was no need to make this a dress rehearsal, but he'd already shot into his bedroom like a rabbit down a hole, and I could hear petticoats a-rustling. After a minute or two, the bedroom door opened a few inches, and Luscombe's voice declaimed from within... "'Gentlemen, would you give your best attention, please, to the master's wife, Lady Marjorie?' Then the door was flung open, and in he strode in the green dress and the wig once again. "'Good evening, my boys, and my, what big boys you all are!' I knew pretty well what Lady Marjorie herself was like in real life, having served afternoon tea at the master's lodge. Mr Luscombe had the lady's querulous tone off pretty well, and he certainly looked the part, and as I watched him recite his monologue, a curious thing began to happen.' It was the first time I'd ever seen anyone trying to perform comedy. I'd never been to a pantomime or a circus, never even set foot inside a theatre, and yet as I was sitting there I felt my mind begin to whir and click, little hammers hammered, tiny cogs ground their teeth together. It was an extraordinary sensation. I found myself assessing each line, each movement, each little aspect of the impersonation as it went by, mentally ticking off the bits that I thought would work, crossing out bits that wouldn't. Yes, that's not bad, I was saying to myself. Exaggerate that a little more, repeat that, lose that. I was really starting to enjoy myself, actually, and before I knew it, he'd finished and was looking at me. You didn't laugh, he said, crestfallen. I'm sorry, sir, I said. I, I, I thought good for your blood <laughs> would get you going. I, I really did. He slumped forlornly into the easy chair opposite. Yes, now, that's a good line, but you should bring it in a lot more often. More often, you say, he frowned. 
I think so, yes. I could see suddenly that he was feeling a little bit sensitive, and so I hesitated to say anything further, but he pressed me. And have you any more bright ideas, Mr. Dando? I took a deep breath to get my thoughts in order. Well, I think you would find it much easier if you were to sit down rather than standing. Most of your audience will know Lady Marjorie from having tea at the lodge. In fact, why don't we pretend that the whole performance is an afternoon tea at the lodge? A spark of interest ignited in my companion, and he leaned forward in his chair. Now you're sitting like a man in a dress, I said, emboldened. Knees together, perhaps to one side. Yes, that's better. And and back absolutely straight. That's good. Now, suppose we put a little table here with a cup and saucer on it. Then, then you can use Lady Marjorie's little trick. Well, whatever do you mean? I couldn't believe I was the only one who'd noticed this. Lady Marjorie was a fearsome woman with a voice like a foghorn and a physique that made you believe she could knock down a horse with a single punch. But she liked to effect a feminine weakness, making out that lifting a cup and saucer full of tea was the most tremendous burden. Oh, would you be so very kind, she would simper, obliging some young chap to leap to his feet and hand her a cup which she could very easily have reached herself from a table only a couple of feet away. I was always sure that she did this with the sole intention of having young male consorts bending in front of her so that she could ogle their firm athletic backsides. Yes, yes, Luscombe shrieked delighted. The very thing. I've seen her do it a dozen times. Let me try. We quickly devised a little bit of business whereby his lady Marjorie would require someone from the audience to lift the heavy cup and saucer for her and then leer lewdly at his rear end for a moment, seen by the audience, but not the unwitting stooge. Lady Marjorie was utterly fanatical about rowing. "'A boy should row,' she'd pontificate at the drop of her hat. "'It's good for the blood!' Luscombe had already used this line once in his routine, but I reckoned, I don't know how, it was instinctive that he needed to repeat it over and over again, and its impact would build. Before long, the script had developed to a point where tea was good for the blood, walking was good for the blood, parsnips were good for the blood, and looking at saucy French lithographs in the privacy of her own home was good for the blood. Hours slipped by unmarked, consumed in gleeful invention, and as the dawn began to light the chimneys on the far side of the new building, our conversation had turned to other amusing cottage characters. I found myself demonstrating my own party piece, my impersonation of my father. "'That's priceless, you know,' Luscombe gurgled between laughs. Both of us had become pretty hysterical by this time and were laughing at almost anything. "'I'm serious,' he insisted. "'You should do that at the smoker. "'You should do that at the smoker. "'It will be an absolute smash hit. "'I'll speak to Browse. "'He's organising the whole thing. "'Do it. "'Say you'll do it. "'It will be a sensation.' "'Which is how I found myself, a week later, "'still not quite believing it, "'in the old reader, about to make my theatrical debut. "'There was a little raised stage "'with a pianist improvising some agreeable plinky-plonk, "'while a noisy audience of a hundred and twenty souls "'paid no attention to him whatsoever.' I peered out through a gap in the hastily strung black curtain that formed the impromptu wing. The room was packed. A fog of smog hung down from the low ceiling, being fuelled by dozens of cigars like the chimneys of some great industrial metropolis. Champagne corks popped, and young male voices brayed and hee-hawed boozily. Standing there, out of sight in my father's clothes, a cushion padding out my tummy, my left leg trembling apprehensively of its own accord, the week just passed seemed like a bizarre dream. I remembered Mr. Luscombe's excitement as he told me that he'd fixed it with Mr. Browse, who was organising the smoker, for me to perform, and the churning of my guts as I realised there was no way to back out of it. I remembered lying awake at night in the tiny room I shared with Lance, gripped with terror, and nudging my brother into the land of the living. Lance, you awake? I want to ask you something. He sighed, rolling over to face me, one eye open. What? When you were in Africa... Ah, he groaned, when I was in Africa. Leave me alone. 
You were scared, weren't you? I told you, didn't I? Yes, but how did you how did you manage when you were really scared? How did you manage to carry on? I tried to stay downwind of as many people as I could so they didn't know how scared I was. Seriously, lads. Well, I tell you this. It were always worse before than it was during. Really? Unless you were one of the blokes who got shot in the head or had an arm blown off. Then it was worse during. Now go to sleep. Lance, listen. I told him about the smoker, about what I'd somehow agreed to do, and he rolled over and looked at me before saying, There's nothing to be scared of. How many of them are going to have repeating rifles? How many of them are going to try and chop you to bits with machetes? Well, not too many, probably. Exactly. Now go to sleep. There was a rustling as of a big and complicated frock, and Mr Luscombe was beside me, also peering out. Decent crowd, he hissed. On the other side of the curtain, another cork popped, and half a dozen boisterous voices wayed as their owners thrust their glasses forward for a refill. Luscombe suddenly hiked up his skirt and retrieved a hip flask from his trouser pocket. Here, he winked, bit of Dutch courage. Why not? I took a sip and felt the spirit trace the shape of my insides in fire. Why Dutch courage, I wonder, when it's Scotch whisky? Luscombe was musing to himself. Do the Dutch even make whisky? And what do they have to be so damn timid about? Living next door to all those Germans, I suppose. Ha! Mr Browse, the tall, athletic young fellow who was in charge of the evening's proceedings, pushed past us and pinned a sheet of paper to the wooden panelling out of sight of the audience. Luscombe nudged me in the ribs. Running order, he whispered, shouldering his way forward to get a view of it past about eight chaps in boaters and stripy blazers. These fellows are first, he said, then me. Crikey, I was hoping not to be so early. You're midway through, after the clog dancing. The fear gripped me once again, the fear of failure, of making a fool of myself, and in front of these people who already held me in such low regard, if indeed they gave me a second thought. Mr Browse completed a hurried headcount of the boaters and blazers, and then, satisfied, bounded past us and up onto the stage. The piano player tinkled to a little flourish of an ending and shut up, which is more than you could say for the packed and sozzled crowd. "'Gentlemen, gentlemen, if you please!' Browse bellowed and gradually heads began to turn in the direction of the little dais, and the hubbub slowly subsided. "'Gentlemen,' Browse began, in a more conversational tone, now he had their attention. "'Thank you for patronising our little entertainment this evening. "'It is still not too late to participate if you feel so inclined. "'See me during the interval, and if you have your sheet music, "'or if Edward knows the ditty you have in mind, "'then I'll happily squeeze you into the second half.' There were one or two lewd haw-haws at this, though quite where the double entendre they thought they'd spotted was lurking was beyond me. And now, Browse went on, let the revels commence. The first part of the evening went past in a blur. I think the opening item was a song by the chaps in boaters, accompanied by the pianist, a jolly little ditty about why you should always have champers in your hampers. There was a verse in it about all the different ways of popping your cork, which they were inordinately proud of. Then it was Mr Luscombe's turn. "'Wish me luck,' he grinned, and then stepped out into the light. "'His Lady Marjorie started a touch uncertainly, it seemed to me, "'but once he got his first big laugh under his belt, "'actually, for the bit of business that we devised together in his rooms, "'his confidence grew. "'By the end he was getting uproarious laughter "'every time Lady Marjorie opined that something was good for the blood, "'and he left the stage to a thunder of applause. "'Flushed and triumphant, he bustled into the wings and grasped me by the hand. "'My dear chap,' he whispered, "'what tremendous fun! "'And I have you to thank, you know. "'Yes, yes, indeed!' "'I was happy for him, and naturally pleased that my contributions had made a difference. "'Mostly, though, I was envious. "'He had finished. 
The jovial mood that Luscombe's performance had generated in the room gradually dissipated during the next few acts, which were not, it has to be said, the absolute apex. One, I remember, was a rather mournful poet delivering sorry odes on the theme of lost love. Fellows were not just yawning as he droned on, they were actually shouting the word, YAWN! But the drip didn't take the hint. Then there was the clog dancer. Everywhere you looked, people were holding their ears and uttering oaths with absolute impunity. One or two were caught out by the suddenness of the cloggist's finale, and so he was greeted with a bellow of, Most confounded bloody racket I have... Oh, he stopped. Beside me in the wings, Browse was frowning at his running order. The evening was spiralling helplessly down the drain, and we both knew it. Right-ho, he hissed, as Clogboy traipsed off with derision ringing in his ears. Ours were just ringing. You're next. Browse hopped up onto the stage and held his hands up for quiet, ever the optimist. I'm sorry to have to tell you, gentlemen, that the college authorities have informed me that your behaviour so far this evening has left something to be desired. A choral ooh rose from the audience, half pleased with themselves for the raucous good time they were having, half outraged that anyone might dare to criticise them for having it. And, and, they have instructed me to make way for our esteemed head porter, Dando here, to speak to you for a few moments. Gentlemen, please. There was a murmur now of sullen displeasure. I began to doubt the wisdom of the conceit I had devised, but it was too late now. Concentrating hard and holding back the trembling in my limbs, I walked out to the middle of the stage in a fair imitation of my father's arthritically shuffling gait. The combined effect of that, the padding round my waist, the borrowed bowler hat and striped second-best waistcoat, and the cigar smoke blurring people's vision, meant, I'm sure, that most, if not all, of the assembled company took me for the genuine article. There was silence. Utter, horrible silence. A second, two, three. My brain suddenly emptied of all thought. "'Well, come on, then!' came a voice from the back, cutting through the silence. "'Get on with it, for goodness' sake!' The casual rudeness of it, the lack of respect that they felt towards me, or rather towards my father, snapped me back to myself. I wasn't going to fail, not in front of these people. First of all,' I barked, "'I've lived and worked in this college for nigh on thirty year, man and boy. I've risen in that time to the position of head porter, like my father before me, and as such I believe I've earned the right to be addressed as Mr. Dando.' Emboldened by anonymity, several of the audience ventured another "ooh" at this, which they'd never have done to the old man's face, I'll tell you that. I fixed them with a stern eye. Second, gentlemen, I've been sitting over in the porter's lodge this past half hour, taking out much-prized pocket watch and checking, and I'm exceeding sorry to have to report that the racket you are making in here this evening, well, I can hardly hear it. I'm very disappointed in you all. Bemusement, mostly, as I looked around, but one or two titters beginning to ripple across the room. Ordinarily, I look forward to your college-smoking concerts, because the amount of disturbance you cause will usually bring the headporters of other colleges round to my lodge to complain, and otherwise I don't get to see them much socially. By now they were starting to get it, and were beginning to laugh. Poor Dr Leather has a very important lecture to deliver tomorrow morning at the history faculty, and he was relying on you to keep him awake this evening long enough to finish copying what he was going to say out of Dr Simpson's latest book. Well, I'm sorry to have to report that because of your half-heartedness, a very distinguished academic career lies in ruins. Confidence building, I stuck my thumbs into my waistcoat pockets and strummed a little tum-tum-tiddle on my padded belly, as was my father's wont when about to reminisce about previous generations. 
The smoker of Michaelmas term 1782, which I remember well because it featured a young Arthur Wellesley doing the Wellington boot dance with which he later made his name, got such applause that plaster fell willy-nilly from ceilings as far away as Trumpington. Huge belly laughs now from everyone in the place. I could see gents turning to one another, asking who the devil I was, and some shrugs in response. If you gentlemen are unable to organise a smoking concert that draws complaints from at least as far away as St Catherine's, I'm afraid we are going to have to forbid the use of the old reader until such time as you learn how to do one properly. The gauntlet thrown down, the ancient room reverberated to cheering, whistling, stamping, howling, a row like you've never heard before. I stood up there in front of the bedlam and had the curious sensation all of a sudden that something was missing. You know what it was? It was the fear. In its place was something I have always since thought of as the power, or rather, with capital letters, the power. Time seemed to slow down for me. I knew I was absolutely certain that everyone in the old reader at that moment was in my thrall. I held them in my hand. I didn't know what I was going to say or do when they stopped cheering, but I did know that I would know exactly. It was the finest feeling I'd ever had in my entire life. As the laughter rolled around the room, I watched it, detached, serene, like a scientist watching an experiment going exactly according to plan. Through the haze of smoke, I could make out individual faces, eyes fastened on me, mouths open in laughter or anticipation of laughter, and there, amongst the blazer-clad goons who had drifted round there after finishing their drippy song, I caught sight of a familiar face, watching, not laughing, just watching. My father... Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 